A few weeks ago on Facebook, an Anglican minister made an interesting observation about the website of a large church here in Sydney. He noticed that on the page that talks about some of the basics of the Christian faith, there's no mention of sin. The page talks about Jesus being a loving, caring, personal friend, there for us in the ups and the downs of life. But there's no mention of sin. There's no mention of the greatest need that we have as humans, our sinful rebellion against God. There's even a sample prayer at the bottom of the page inviting people to accept Jesus. But again, there's no mention of sin. Praying to be rescued, but no mention of what people need to be rescued from. We live in a world where the very mention of sin is repugnant. We're told that you don't have any right to impose your values on someone else. And in fact, you should celebrate their behaviour, whatever it might be, as an expression of their own freedom. Our televisions are filled with shows that celebrate sin, murder, lust, adultery, greed. And sadly, it seems that even some of our churches try to avoid upsetting people by never speaking about sin. Happy to talk about God's love and his grace, but never sin. It upsets people. It's a downer. It's not good for our self-esteem. But my friends, as we saw from Leviticus chapter 4 and 5 this morning, the Bible is not silent about sin. It shows us that sin is our deepest problem. It shows us that sin is serious, that it destroys lives and relationships. And worst of all, it separates us from God. This morning, as we look at these chapters in Leviticus, we're going to see God's perspective on sin. We're going to see just how seriously God takes it. And we're also going to see his solution. Have you ever walked into a factory during the busyness of the day and just been totally bewildered by what's going on? You know what I'm talking about. You walk in the door and there are people walking around carrying things. There are machines pounding away, conveyor belts moving, bells going off all the time. And you just can't make head or tail of it. It all just seems like it's totally out of control. But then you see your friend in the corner who's the foreman and he begins speaking to you. He shows you the way the parts flow through the factory. He explains what all of the machines do, what all of the bells mean. And finally, he takes you out to the shipping bay where the final product is sent out to the customer. 
with his perspective, it all begins to make sense. What seemed like a pounding mass of noise and confusion all comes together when you see the final product. I think that for many of us, when we come to Leviticus, we feel a little bit like we're stepping into that factory. We come across not machines and bells, but strange ceremonies, sacrifices, rituals, dietary laws. And it's really easy for us here in the 21st century to just get disorientated, to be unable to make head or tail of what's happening. But if we can see the final product, if we can see where it's all heading, the result, it begins to make sense. Thankfully, God has shown us the end product of Leviticus. It's in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That verse really encapsulates the entire book. God says to his chosen people, I am holy. I am holy. And to enjoy my presence amongst you, to continue to enjoy fellowship with me, that's what you need to be as well. Holy, set apart, visibly different from the nations all around. Now I realise that we're coming to this sermon in Leviticus a little bit cold. So we need to get the flow of where we are in the Bible. We need some context. In our series in Genesis that we finished last week, we saw God begin to fulfil his promises to Abraham. Abraham's descendants began to increase in number and we saw the Lord provide for his chosen line through Joseph in Egypt, didn't we? And then in Exodus, the next book of the Pentateuch, we see Israel enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh and the people are concerned that that Abraham's descendants are becoming so numerous in number that they could be overpowered. So Pharaoh enslaves them, forcing them to undertake hard labour. But God doesn't abandon his people, does he? He miraculously delivers them out of captivity into freedom and towards the promised land. Having graciously ransomed his people, God begins to give his people the law in Exodus, his rules for living. Look at what God says just before he gives Israel the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. This is just before he gives them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then God proceeds to give the Ten Commandments. Do you see that there's an order here? The order's really important. First of all, God rescued his people. And then, and only then, does he give them the law. Sometimes we can misunderstand the function of the law. The law was not a hurdle that God's people had to get over 
in order to enjoy relationship with God. No, God rescued them first, graciously, lovingly, and then he gave them the law. He gave the law to his saved people. Please see the order, friends. First comes redemption and then comes the law. That's where we are as we come to Leviticus. The nation of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's glorious presence has just filled the tabernacle, his dwelling place amongst them. And here God shows them how they are to approach him in worship and live as his covenant people. They are to be holy and they are to bring sacrifice. And when you go home this afternoon after a swim in the pool and and read the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you'll see that God outlines five sacrifices for his people that are central to their worship of him. You've got the burnt offering, you've got the grain offering, you've got the fellowship offering, the guilt offering, and as we see in chapters 4 and 5, the sin offering. The first three of those offerings were voluntary. You could choose to offer them of your own will, but the final two, they were compulsory. These verses, these sacrifices, yes, a little foreign to us, they tell us what these offerings were for and how they were to be conducted. I'm sure you noticed that as you saw the detail that was contained in our reading earlier. So that's the scene. That's the background. Let's get stuck into the passage. Because here in chapters 4 and 5, God shows us the seriousness of sin. Let's take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. God sets the the frame of reference right here at the start. It's unintentional sin we're talking about here. Sins that you didn't realise that you'd committed at the time. Sins of carelessness and ignorance. We commit these all the time, don't we? We accidentally drive the wrong way down a one-way street and you don't realise it until way later. You accidentally forget to scan an item at the self-serve cash register at the shops. It was the same for the Israelites, although they didn't drive the wrong way down streets and thankfully they didn't have self-serve cash registers back then. They were lucky. But it was the same for them. And so when they came to realise that they had sinned, they would make the sacrifice that was prescribed here in chapter 4. Unintentional sin. Does that strike you as a little unusual? That God has a whole sacrifice here in Leviticus for I didn't mean to sins? These aren't intentional or premeditated sins. There actually, in the law, wasn't a sacrifice for those intentional, high-handed sins against God. All the sinner could do in intentional sin was basically cast themselves, praying for repentance before Yahweh. But here, we're looking at 
unintentional sin. And we see that even these I didn't mean to sins were enough to cause impurity and to defile the symbol of God's presence amongst the people, the tabernacle. Oftentimes, we have such a low view of sin, don't we? Most of the time, we don't even worry about our unintentional sins. If we accidentally hurt someone's feelings when we speak to them, we usually write that off as their problem and not our own, don't we? We certainly don't repent of those unintentional sins. But God shows us here that all sin, all sin is serious. All sin defiles us. All sin offends God. All sin puts a barrier up between us and him. All sin, even the unintentional ones, requires cleansing. That's the purpose of the offering here in Leviticus 4 and 5. It deals with unintentional sin. But interestingly, you'll notice as you read Leviticus in the week ahead, and I'd really encourage you to do that with this context, you'll see that this very offering also provided atonement for other forms of uncleanness, things that aren't sin. We saw some of those as we read chapter 5 touching an unclean animal or an unclean person, thoughtlessly taking an oath. Later on we see that this sacrifice was used to cleanse a woman after she'd given birth or to cleanse a man or a woman after they had been healed of a skin disease. Why is that? Well, it's important to see that whilst it's sin we're dealing with here in chapters 4 and 5, The fact that this sacrifice is used elsewhere points to the same thing. God is pure and holy. God is holy. He is perfect. But living in a sinful, fallen world, God's people are going to encounter defilement and disease and death, which makes them unclean to enter God's presence at the tabernacle. And so, they needed to be cleansed through the purification offering before they could enter God's presence. One of the most important things for us to notice in this passage this morning is that the Lord required different sacrifices depending on who committed the sin. Did you notice that as we read earlier? The sacrifice was different depending on whether it was the high priest, whether it was a leader, whether it was a regular citizen or the community as a whole. And it was on a sliding scale from a young bull for the high priest right the way through to just a female lamb or a female goat for a normal person. Those who had the greatest responsibility were required to make sacrifices that were most costly. All sin could be forgiven by God. That's clear. He provided the means. But God singles out the religious and the civil leaders here for special attention. Why is that? Well, it's because when we sin, our sin affects other people. Our sin has an impact on others. 
And if we're in a position of leadership, our sin has the potential to affect a greater number of people, doesn't it? It's an important principle that we take away. We see that in chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people. We'll stop there. Did you see that? The sins of the anointed priest, that's the high priest, brought guilt not just on himself, but on all the people. The sin of the anointed priest had consequences for all of God's people. And not only that, if you were very eagle-eyed, you would have noticed this as we read it earlier, the defilement of leaders also goes much deeper. When a common person sinned, the blood from their sacrifice was dabbed on the horns of the altar in the courtyard. But when a leader sinned, when the high priest or the whole community leader sinned, both the holy place in the courtyard and the most holy place, right there in the tent of meeting where God's presence was strongest, that had to be cleansed as well. The sin of leaders penetrates deeply. If someone has a contagious disease, we generally tell them to stay away from other people, don't we? This week we actually just got an email from from Peter's childcare centre saying that a child at the preschool had chickenpox and that if we saw any of those symptoms in Peter, we were to take him to a doctor and keep him home. They're told to stay home so they don't infect other people because the more people that an infected person has contact with, the more people who are going to get the bug. And it's exactly the same principle here. Leaders are in a position that allows them to influence lots and lots of people. If the leader is infected with sin, they're going to infect lots of other people as well. The implication for us is clear, isn't it? And also quite pertinent, given we're voting on our leaders for 2018 on Tuesday night. My friends, we need to be careful to only appoint leaders in our church that meet the biblical guidelines. It's not enough to just want a ministry position filled. It must be filled by the right person. But after they've been appointed, we must hold our leaders to account for their actions and their inaction. That's why Paul instructed Timothy to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, and in faith and in purity. That's because waywardness on the part of leaders infects and affects the whole community. Did you notice too that when the sinner is the high priest or the whole community, no one gets to eat the leftover sacrifice, which would have been a shame back in this time. Meat was expensive and it would have been a shame to have seen it all burned up. But no, it's taken outside the camp and burned. Taken outside the camp and burned. Why is that? Well, it makes logical sense, doesn't it? It wouldn't be right 
for the priest to benefit from his own sin. In either of these cases, he was either the one who sinned himself or it was the community that he leads. And so it wouldn't have been right for him to benefit from his own wrongdoing. It's a little bit like robbing the bank and then handing yourself into the police and expecting to receive a reward. You can't benefit from your own sin. And so the rest of the sacrifice can't be eaten by the priest. It can't be used as their food, but it's taken outside the camp and it's burned. Symbolising the end that the sinner deserved. Removed from the people of God. Abandoned outside the camp. It really drives home just how seriously God views sin, doesn't it? Does it make for comfortable reading, particularly given how low a view of sin we often have? But it does show us just how serious our sin problem is. But thankfully, this passage does not end on a downer because God doesn't just show us our problem. He also provides the solution for our sin. Be honest. Have you ever started one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans and hit Leviticus in the end of February and got a little bit bogged down? You found it hard work? If you, if you got bogged down by the detail and the repetition in Leviticus, hopefully you noticed that in our Bible reading this morning. If you notice that, my friends, you notice something which is really, really important. For the covenant people of God, coming into God's presence was something that had to be done very, very carefully. And it had to be done on his terms. Exactly as he said. That's why Leviticus was the first book of the Bible that Jewish children memorised. Yes, you heard that right. It was the first book of the Torah that Jewish children didn't just read, no, they memorised it. Because you can't approach our holy God just any way you want. You approach him on his terms. That's what we have here. God's terms for removing defilement and receiving purification. He graciously provides a way for his covenant people to be a, to have their unintentional sin atoned for so that they can continue to enjoy his presence amongst them. Do you see that this sacrifice, that the law wasn't onerous, it wasn't an imposition, no, it's God's love, it's God's grace in action. There's a few really important things we need to see here in God's solution for sin. Firstly, that purification from sin required the death of a perfect substitute. A perfect substitute had to die. The sinner had to bring a perfect animal, one without defect, to the entrance, to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting. The animal had to be perfect. You had to bring the best of your cattle. 
You couldn't bring the mangy one or the one that had a limp. You had to bring the best that you had. The one that you thought was going to win first prize at the Jerusalem show next year. And you'd use your hand for a very important symbol. We still use our hands to symbolise a lot of things, don't we? When a student raises their hand in class, it generally means that they would like to speak. When we place our hand on someone's shoulder or back, it's generally a word of encouragement or support. When we wave at someone, we're extending a greeting and saying hello. And from time to time, when we're stuck in traffic, we use our hands to symbolise less godly things, don't we? Here in this sacrifice, the sinner would lay their hands on the animal's head, identifying with the animal, acknowledging that this animal on whom I am now placing my hand will lose its life in my place, that it would be my substitute. And then the sinner would slaughter the animal. Not the priest. Did you notice that as we read? It's not the priest who slaughters the animal. We often think that's the case. But no, it was the sinner. It was the person who had committed the sin who took the life of the animal substitute. You took the life of the animal that died in your place. It's powerful, isn't it? Just imagine the scene. You wrestle and struggle to bring this animal to the entrance to the tent of meeting. It wouldn't have come easily. It might have known what was going to happen. You wrestle the animal down. Maybe you need to tie its legs together because it's struggling. You take your knife out and as you draw that knife through its neck, its blood flowing out and being caught by the priest, its life slowly ebbing away, you'd certainly see the seriousness of your sin, wouldn't you? You'd understand intimately that the wages of sin is death. As that animal died there, surrounded in a pool of blood, you would understand that God had graciously allowed you to live and that animal to die in your place. Powerful, isn't it? We also see the grace of God here in that he provides a way for everyone to be forgiven. Everyone in the community had access to the forgiveness that God provides. We saw earlier that costly sacrifices were required of the leaders in the community, but God also made provision for those at the other end of the scale, for the poor. If a person couldn't afford a goat or a lamb, they could sacrifice the considerably cheaper two doves or pigeons. And if even that was too much, they could offer a tenth of an ephah of flour, which you could actually obtain from gleaning the field. Forgiveness was open to all. Forgiveness was not dependent on your wealth or your status in the community. God provided a means. Chapter 5 also shows us a third important thing. 
that repentance was necessary. Let's read chapter 5, verse 5. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. You had to confess your sin and then you would bring your sacrifice to God in faith. Faith that God will graciously forgive a repentant sinner. These are fundamental principles for relationship with God, aren't they? Can you see how Leviticus fits into God's overarching story of redemption? All sin defiles and causes a breakdown of relationship with God. All sin has to be dealt with. The only way that can happen is through repentance and through the sacrifice of one life for another. Despite Leviticus seeming a bit foreign to us, it's not at all, is it? It's the gospel. The gospel's right here. All of which leads us to, not the temporary, but the ultimate solution for sin. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, okay, this is all well and good, but I'm a 21st century New Covenant Christian. What has all of this got to do with me? If that's you and you're asking that question, that's great. I'm really pleased because that is exactly the question you should be asking. Because when we read Leviticus in light of the New Testament, we do see that some things have changed, but also a lot remains the same. Our God is still a holy God. He is still pure and perfect and holy. We are still sinful, defiled, and in need of purification. You still can't come to God on your own terms. You can't approach God with the wrong sacrifice. Only the sacrifice that he prescribes is necessary. And you can't approach him without the right priest as your intermediary. My friends, the solution to all of those things is found in Jesus. Jesus is the only reason that you didn't have to bring a bull or a goat or a sheep in the car with you this morning along with the kids. Jesus. These these chapters reveal to us very clearly the character of God, don't they? God is devastatingly holy. What a counter that is to the she'll be right, God's my mate attitude that so many in Australia have today. God is devastatingly holy. Sin and defilement cannot be in his presence. It must be destroyed. But we also see God's love and grace and mercy, don't we? As he's provided for us the ultimate purification offering, his own son. As we bring this together, let's turn to to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. 
The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Every time people brought the purification offering to the tabernacle, they were being reminded of the reality of their sin and its seriousness. A constant reminder of their desperate need for an ultimate solution. It's the same for us, isn't it? And he continues in verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jumping to verse 12. But when this priest, this is Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. My friends, the sacrificial system was designed to point people to Jesus. The ultimate purification offering. Jesus is its fulfilment. As Romans 8.3 says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. To be what? To be a sin offering. Jesus' death alone is able to purify us from sin. Not just our unintentional sins, but our intentional, deliberate, high-handed sins of rebellion against God. Sin always leads to death. That hasn't changed. Someone will die for our sin. We have the choice, though. We can experience that death ourselves and experience eternal separation from God. Or we can place our faith in Christ, the perfect, once-for-all sin offering, trusting in his sacrificial death at Calvary to atone for our sin. The choice is ours. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. This boy's sister had a rare blood disease. She shared a unique blood type with her brother and would almost certainly die if her brother didn't offer his blood to her. The doctor carefully explained all of this to the little boy, explaining that without his blood, his sister would die. Could you be brave 
and give your blood to your sister? He asked the young boy. He hesitated and his lips began to tremble. Then he smiled and said, For my sister? Sure. Not long after, the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. The young boy smiled at his sister as he watched the blood pour out of his arm down the clear plastic tube. Then his smile faded and as he lay there feeling weak, he looked up at the doctor and with beautiful eyes said to the doctor, Doctor, when do I die? He thought that he was giving his life for his sister. But because of his great love for her, he was willing to do it. He was willing to give his blood that she might live. Hebrews 13.12 tells us that Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Just like the purification offering that we've studied this morning, Jesus was taken outside the gate and died on our behalf. Just as bulls were burned outside the city to show the people what their sin rightly deserved, our Saviour died outside the gate to show us what we deserve. Outside the gate, outside the city, he bore our sin to atone for our sin, to cleanse us, to purify us and make us holy. He is the ultimate and final purification offering, Jesus Christ our Lord.